something doesn't seem to be sticking or connecting. And what's interesting is at this point, at this idea, this question of is there something wrong with the world, nearly everybody, regardless if they are religious or irreligious, um, progressive or conservative, um, theist or atheist, like, like all over the spectrum, just, just look in our world today, people are constantly aware of a particular part of our world that's not right. Everybody's got like a thing that they're looking at that's saying, this is not right and it should be better. Everyone is agreeing right now that the condition of our world is not right. Whether we're talking about race or class or education or access to, to things that are needed, people are constantly agreeing with this one idea that things are not right. Now the follow-up question is this, it's a little bit more in depth. You got to do a little bit of thinking about this, and so I'm going to pose it to you to consider. If you were asked, uh, do you think there's something wrong with the world, and you answered yes, and were asked the follow-up question, well, what exactly is wrong with the world? What would you say? What actually is the thing that's wrong with the world? Now, you might take a big, deep breath and exhale and say, what's not wrong with the world? You know, like there's everything wrong, but... Think a little bit deeper about that. What, what do you think is wrong with the world? When you see a news story or a tragic event or something that is just awful, some crime, what's the first thing that you think of? My point of bringing this up is that uh, almost every group in every place recognizes that there's something wrong with the world, and we all sort of have our views on what that thing is, and it's usually what we believe is the most imminent threat to us. So some people might look out the world and say it's greed. Uh, people that are rich and wealthy and have all kinds of stuff, they're the ones that are wrong with the world because they're stepping on those that are less fortunate than them and, and, and advancing in the world. And others might look at the same thing and say, no, no, it's entitlement and this poverty mentality. If those people would just um, fix this, this, and this and, and, and do things right, the world would not have its problems. Some people might say, well, it's just lack of education or ignorance. So if we just build more schools, give people more information, equip more people, they will do better and we won't have problems in the world anymore. Some people might say, well, the problem is ethics. We need people to be more responsible, more respectful, and just people need to treat each other right. If we'll do that, things will be fine. As Matt was saying this morning, some people might say, well, it's religion is what's wrong with the world. And on one side of that coin, people would say, we need people to be more pious, more faithful, more religious. And on the other side of that coin, punk people might say, well, religion is ruining everybody. If we could just get religion out of it, then there wouldn't be a problem. What do you think is wrong with the world? It's a really good thing for you to be considering. Because your friends at work, your coworkers, your neighbors, who might not be Christians, are actually finding common ground with you right now when they're saying the world's not right. I mean, just listen to the news right now. It is bombarded with things that, that, like little issues all over the place. Not little, but big issues where people are agreeing that the world is not right. And it is important for us to develop a very thoughtful answer to that question. What's wrong with the world? It's important how we answer that. Constantly, when I'm thinking about what's wrong with the world, I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton, a story I've probably told most of you here, even probably from the pulpit, where he, he was an early 20th century writer, author, theologian uh, over in England. 
and the, uh, the big London newspaper had written to some of the world leading thinkers, philosophers, theologians, and asked them the question, what is wrong with the world and how do we fix it? And they were hoping that if they asked enough smart people and they gathered all those answers of enough smart people, they would, get the, they would figure out the, the solution to what's wrong with the world. And they would publish it in their paper. And I'm sure it had nothing to do with selling papers. It was just altruistic. But, and they would solve the world's problems. And so all these people began writing essays back to the, uh, this newspaper saying, well, here's what I think is wrong with the world. And a lot of the lists that I included, well, you know, the social economic situation of our world is what's wrong. We have class differences or there were racial differences or educational differences. And if we could just solve this thing, the world would be fine. And G.K. Chesterton wrote back and he said, uh, dear editor, to the question that you've asked, what is wrong with the world? The answer is me. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's all he wrote, and he just sent it back to them. You see, when we ask the question, what is wrong with the world, and we find ourselves in common ground with those who might not share our faith, we have an opportunity to go one step farther in sharing common ground. What's wrong with the world is the thing that is in them outside, also the thing that's in us, and the force behind it, which we're going to call the word evil. Evil. We're starting a series tonight. It's going to last six weeks on the concept of evil. We're going to talk about evil tonight, a little bit of its origin, and then we're going to spend four weeks talking about the restraints that God has built into the world to resist evil that we have in this world. Those things like uh, the human conscience, the family unit, civil authority, uh, the word of God. All these things were built into the world to restrain evil. And then finally, we'll spend our sixth week together talking about the promise of how evil will finally be solved. But at the very base level, when you agree with your neighbor, your coworker, your friend on, yeah, this world is messed up, right? This world is wrong. What is wrong with the world? We have an opportunity to take the next step to say, yeah, what I believe is wrong with the world is evil. And that evil resides in all of us if we don't fight against it. It's a good time for me to tell you or remind you about a formal debate that's coming up on in September. Uh, all the information is out in the bulletin board. It's three weeks from now on a Tuesday night at Ohio State. There's a um, professor from Fried Hardeman University. Ralph Gilmore is his name. He's got his Ph.D. in philosophy from Vanderbilt. Really, I think it's Vanderbilt, maybe University of Tennessee. Really smart guy. Um, he is going to be debating an atheist professor from Duke University named Alex Rosenberg, who is probably one of the foremost leading atheists in our culture today. He's a powerful voice amongst those who are saying what's wrong with the world is, you know, typically like religion or religious people. And they're going to be debating this one question. Is the presence of evil in our world evidence that God does or does not exist? They're going to ask that question, and it would be something that you might enjoy doing. And so we're going to try to help you build a little bit of a context if you do want to go to that so that you have some basis for which you can understand what they're talking about. So I'm going to ask you three really simple questions as we think tonight. It shouldn't be too long. First question is, what is evil? How would you define it? Find out it's not too easy. Question two is, where did evil come from? Question three is, how do we deal with evil? Let's go. Number one. What is evil? Try just for a moment to come up with a definition. It's a little bit challenging. Like, how would you say in a sentence, 
evil is dot 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 what's interesting is when you ask Google which I do all the time ask Google you know what do you think Google and Google has all kinds of answers for me in 4.2 two seconds 60 million reviews right Google can't even avoid the religious element of defining evil in fact it is very definition like Webster's and those people that they draw from Wikipedia where they're trying to draw the answer of what is evil the flavor of religion is involved in that question evil's very difficult to define it's kind of vague I think Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 is probably the clearest biblical passage that gives us a direction on what evil really is, where the writer said this, Woe to those who call good evil, and evil good. Light darkness, and darkness light, and woe to those who call bitterness sweet, and sweet bitterness what the writer's getting at there when he's saying, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, is that these two ideas, evil is the opposite of that which is good. Now that still leaves us kind of in a vague place when we talk about what evil is, right? If I said, what is evil, and you just say the opposite of good, we're still not anchored to anything yet. Because what's your follow-up question to that? Well, how do you define? Come on. Good, right? Evil is the opposite of good. Well, what's good? What do you call good? Evil is really just the opposite of the way things are supposed to be. And this is why people detached from faith, religion, Christianity, still use the word evil even though they wouldn't call themselves religious because sewn into us is the belief that things, when they're not like they're supposed to be, is evil. So they look at an injustice and they say, that's evil. They look at something wrong and they say, this just doesn't compute for me. This is not the way it should be. I'm making a moral judgment about this thing and it's not the way it should be. Therefore, it's the only word they can use. It's evil. It's evil. This is the root of why it's so hard to define. Because you and I must agree on what is good before you and I will agree on what is evil. And if we don't agree on what we consider to be good, we're not going to agree on what we consider to be evil. Everybody with me so far? And so we oftentimes in our culture argue about good and evil like we do about ice cream flavors. What, what's your preference, right? Well, this one's better than this one. Well, I like this one and you like this one. And, and what leaves us so detached from really understanding what's wrong with the world is that we've detached not from what evil is, because we know that intuitively it's opposite of what is good, but we've detached from that which is good. Now, when Jesus was asked what is good, how did he answer? There is only one rule that's good. There's only one that's good, and that is God. Evil is the opposite of everything God. His character, his nature, and the way that he's made us in his very image. And he's put himself into creation so that we might see how we're supposed to work. So without an agreed upon good, it is actually illogical for people to argue and call anything evil. If you can't agree on what things should be, then you actually can't really enter the debate of what, thing, what, what evil really is. So spoiler alert for the debate that's coming up. Um, the, the smart guy on our side, <laughs> um, uh, Professor Gilmore, is going to say that. 
that it's actually illogical for you to call something evil if you can't even agree on what is good. If you're arguing that we can't really define anything as good because it's completely subjective, then you can't really argue that anything's evil. Everybody with me? Give me too much? Okay, okay, we're good. Next question. Where in the world did evil come from? Where did it come from? Now, this might seem like an easy answer for some of us, right? In Genesis chapter 3, where the fall of mankind came into existence, we see in Genesis 1 the beautiful song of creation, the poem of Genesis 1. Hebrew literature is beautiful there. Genesis 2, we see that detailed story of creation, how life is supposed to be in Genesis 3. It's ruined. And you might say, your immediate response when I ask, where did evil come from? And you think of Genesis 3, you might immediately say, evil is, it came from people rebelling against God. And that is true. Yes and amen. That is exactly right. Sin is, at its very core, at its very essence, rebellion away from God and the way that He has wanted us to live life. That's the basis of sin. And sin spread through the human nature becomes the presence of evil. So evil, bearing itself out in the words of sin, is rebelling against the way that God wants us to live life. And sin is said from the very beginning, as you see in Eve's narrative account, when she is looking at the fruit, talking to herself, sin is basically you and I saying this, that I will have the best life. I will find the life that I've always wanted, the life that I've always wanted to live. When I don't have anyone outside of myself telling me how to live, what to do, where to go, and how to think. That is the narrative of our culture. That I will have the best life the moment everyone outside of me stops telling me how to live. And I get to decide how I want to live. Now, you parents of teenagers, sound familiar? Right? That, that, that wells up in us. This weird, strange, out-of-nowhere desire that says, my life would go great if people would stop telling me how to live. Teenagers, listen to me. That is sin lying to you. I promise you, your parents love you more than you love you. I promise, okay? And even when they're frustrating you, they love you more than you love you. Okay? Everybody good? It's, it's the evil that wells up in us that says, my life will be great if people just leave me alone. I get to do what I want. That's the essence of sin. And when we collectively do that, we see the presence of evil. Sin is a disposition of the heart. It's an attitude. It's not just an action. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 that out of our hearts come all vile and evil deeds. But you know in Genesis chapter 3, we've got Adam and Eve, rebellion. You remember that other character in the story? Who's the other character? Satan, right? Satan. And in our sort of modern, enlightened scientific minds, we as uh, you know, 21st century humans have all but stripped from the human experience things that go beyond what we can see and touch and feel, the physical. Um, in our minds, in our enlightened Western minds, we have, we have um, reduced anything that is spiritual, anything that is not physical. We almost um, look down upon it as if it's kind of ignorant or if it's kind of like you know, less than. The Bible doesn't shy away from the idea that evil also has a cosmic force behind it. Something bigger than just bad people doing bad things, right? 
the, the, the Bible is replete with this narrative that it's not just Eve all by herself that wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'd like to spoil this whole thing. Or people just wake up one day and say, you know what, uh, yesterday was good, but today I'd like to just kind of ruin my day or ruin someone else's day. I'm going to go ahead and be evil. The Bible constantly presents this message that we're more than just physical beings that live in this world, that there are forces outside of us, bigger than us. And that makes us uncomfortable as Western enlightened Americans to think about. But the Bible doesn't shy away from that. In fact, Paul would say that we do not wrestle in our spiritual warfare against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against principalities and powers. And he finally says it this way. We wrestle against spiritual forces of evil. So when we see evil in the world, class distinctions where people hurt one another, educational indifferences where ac- or differences where access is not granted, racial tensions where there's hatred amongst groups, when we see that evil, yes, there are behaviors in those people that need to be addressed. But the Bible would also say that there are forces of evil behind those people. Evil has a force behind it. His name is Satan and he has fallen angels. In fact, hell itself was created for not humanity, but for the devil and his angels. That's what Jesus said. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. Life eternally without God because he chose rebellion. And he is actively trying to deceive as many people as possible that life will be great without God. And guess what hell is? That's all hell is. Life apart from God. Okay? And when we forget this point, what we do is we make our fight against evil just against flesh and blood. We forget this whole idea. It becomes like a um, Scooby-Doo episode. Now, I know it's kind of weird to bring a theology of Satan in with Scooby-Doo, but hang with me for just a moment. How many of you watch Scooby-Doo? Any young people watch Scooby-Doo? It's great, right? Love that show. Um, it kind of scares my kids, you know? But what's weird, what's interesting about the Scooby-Doo, it's always like this enchanted beginning, right? They're in some big castle, or they're at some, you know, they're at some mountain skiing, and there's this beautiful sort of lodge, and there's some mystery happens. And what does the crew all do? They start to think that it's some big mysterious thing behind it, right? And they're running around and trying to figure out what's going on, and then, you know, um, Shaggy gets scared, and then what's Scooby say? Rut-row, you know, and, and, and we all, it all kind of comes together. And then all of a sudden, um, some rich banker, right, just trips, and his appearance is exposed, and he's not really this big magical force, is he? He's just a person. And a lot of times when we think about evil, it ends up just being kind of like a Scooby-Doo episode where we see, we, we, we think that it's kind of, um, you know, something bigger than us, but then we end up just fighting against people. The Bible would tell us that that which is behind evil is not just bad people doing bad things. But there's actually a devil, and he has those that follow him called fallen angels. And their entire goal is to rob God of his glory and convince you that God is not for your best good, but wants to take you from God. And so when you see evil in the world, injustices, when you see crime in the world, when you see racism, when you see indifference towards hurting and suffering, when you see evil in the world, recognize that, yes, there are bad people making bad decisions and bad behaviors, but as believers in Christ, recognize that there are also forces behind those things, and we fight against those. So how are we going to deal with evil? Let me give you three things, and we'll be done. How are you going to deal with evil? Number one, you need to be anchored in the promise 
of God. There's two places I'll tell you about. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about the resurrection of Jesus over and over. And one of the places there, verses 20 through 28, Paul is telling us this beautiful thought that, yes, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And in telling us that, he tells us where Jesus is right now, seated at the right hand of God. And then he tells us what Jesus is doing right now. And he says he is waiting to come on a return back to earth. And you know what he's waiting for? There's one thing he's waiting for. He is putting underneath his feet all principalities, all powers, all the spiritual forces of wickedness. Jesus right now is actively bringing into subjection under his feet all of the principalities and powers, those evil forces that are bigger than just us humans. And the promise is that he will ultimately defeat all of them. And eventually he'll even bring death under his feet. And when he does, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he will return and he will hand the kingdom back to his father with all of these principalities and powers subjected to him. And he himself will be subjected again to the father. And he says, God will be all in all. Jesus will be our elder brother. There's a day coming when all of the evil will be destroyed. Peter promises it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's my second verse for this text, for this point. 2 Peter chapter 3 um, verses about 8 through 13, where he says that one day is like a thousand years to the Lord. God desires that all would repent and come to have life in him. And he talks about the day when the Lord will return. And on that day, he says, the evil deeds of this world will be exposed and then dissolved, done away with. It's almost like the heat of the, and the light of the return of Jesus will take all of the evil that exists in this world, all of the motivations that are ill, all of the desires that are impure, all of the thoughts that are, are filled with hatred and bitter, bitterness and vile, all of that that's even yet still remaining in us. And he's going to bring it to the surface like boiling impurities out of gold. And he's going to do away with all the evil. And he says there will be a world where righteousness dwells promise. So point one, how do you deal with evil? You anchor yourself in the promise of God. When you see evil, the, all the air doesn't get let out of your balloon. You have a hope that is anchored in something beyond this world, something outside of this world that's going to make this place where we dwell with God perfect. We, we trust in that promise. So evil, yes, it crushes us. It hurts us. We're sad about it. When it's in us, we want it out of us. We fight against us, but we are not, We, as Paul would say, we do not um, grieve as those who have no hope, 1 Thessalonians 4. We have not lost our hope in the presence of evil. Number two, we fight with incredible diligence. So we're anchored in the promise. Number two, we deal with evil by fighting with diligence. Remember the prayer of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer? Uh, in ch uh, chapter 6, verse 10 of Matthew, he said, uh, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, Thy will, or your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. So that promise that we just talked about, that we're going to dwell in a place. Heaven is just the presence of God and dwelling with man. That's what it means. We're going to dwell in a place fully with God someday where righteousness reigns. And we as Christians who have that hope welling up in us that there's going to be a world where kids don't suffer, where injustices are not around, where racism is gone. We're going to be in a world someday like that. That deep longing for it drives a hope within us to bring as much of heaven to earth as we can right now. Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right now, help me to bring as much of heaven to earth as I can. 
And Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 tells us to stand, putting on the full armor of God, to wage war, not against flesh and blood, but against those principalities. And we armor ourselves with the armor of God. We stand and we fight against evil. So we're anchored in hope, we're fighting with diligence, and we're utilizing the God-given restraints with patience. This is the third point. I told you there, there are four things that we're going to talk about in the next four weeks. I want to I walk you through them. Matt and I are going to walk you through uh, these four things that God has given to humanity to restrain evil in the time between uh, Eden and heaven. He has given us things. Number one, he's given us the human conscience. I believe the scripture teaches us that sown into the heart of every man and woman is the, the moral law of God, to know the difference between right and wrong. That's, that's put into us. But we can have our consciences seared with a hot iron, meaning we become numb and callous to what's right and wrong. And so God has given us a human conscience that we've got to cultivate. Number two, he's given us a family unit. It is within the family that children are to be raised to know the difference between right and wrong. And we're seeing more and more in our society the family unit break down. And we're going to have to come around those units that break down. We as the church and support that unit because one of the ways that the body of Christ is, is described is as the family of God. And so where we find circumstances where the family unit is not intact, we need to be people that shore up that shortage of the family unit and help support that to raise young people to know the difference between right and wrong that we might have people morally guided. The third way, human conscience, the family unit, we have civil authority. The Bible presents this picture that civil authority is actually given to us by God as a way to monitor the behavior of humanity, to serve humanity, to hold back evil. And unfortunately, sometimes evil people get into those, those cases, but we find that for the most part, civil authority has been given to us by God um, so that we might have evil restrained. And the Bible even teaches us as Christians how to interact with our civil authority. And finally, we'll see that the best answer God gave us was not just our conscience and the family unit and the authority of the government, but ultimately he gave us his message, his word. Great that it's preserved for us on the pages of scripture, but I don't just mean like paper pages or ink that's printed. What I mean is the message of God to us. You see, the Bible reveals, as we read in Romans chapter 1, that God has made himself known in creation, that he, that he has told us who he is, his invisible attributes clearly seen by the things that are made, but we as humans have subdued that, we have pushed that down in our ungodliness and unrighteousness, we have pushed that truth to the side and God has sent his message to us to tell us not just that he exists but who he is in detail he's revealed that to us and in doing that he's told us who we are so we can know the truth about who he is, the truth about who we are, and the truth about how we reunite to him and wait for that promise of the world that's going to come where there will be no evil. And in the ultimate expression of his desire to rid the world of evil, we see the word came, not just in the printed form, but in flesh. Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 is called the word. We said the word was with him in the very beginning, and that word became flesh and he dwelt among us and when we behold his glory, the word of God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, we, we behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten. He's full of grace and he's full of truth.
we'll finally see that the ultimate solution to evil movements are good we need to be involved in the world as much as we can but the ultimate solution to evil is when people behold the glory of the word of God Jesus Christ and in doing so they have both grace and they have truth and then that part of us evil then begins to solve itself in each and every one of us and we become a force against evil to push back the darkness may we be people that not just understand evil where it came from but be people that actively know how to fight against us and be a presence of light in a dark world. So I hope you'll join us as we journey the next five weeks to understand evil and how we can fight against it. And if evil is something that's kind of reigning in you right now, the darkness is presiding too much in a way that is owning you in a way that you don't want, let me offer you right now the Word of God, not just in printed form, but in the form of Jesus Christ. And when you know Him and understand Him, the grace and truth of God will begin to drive that evil out. Let's stand and sing.